Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? It is this is episode 96. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. We all know that life moves fast, and oftentimes it's very difficult to be in the moment, especially when you're pursuing a passion. And our guest this episode, Stake Shapiro, knew his passion for sports radio at an early age growing up in Boston. His love for sports would eventually lead him to Atlanta, where he has become one of the most well-known personalities, not only in the sports talk radio world, but he's also well-known amongst all the foodies. From starting and owning a radio station while also hosting on 790 The Zone to now hosting on 680 The Fan, State continues to be a mainstay on the Atlanta Sports Talk Radio airwaves as Atlanta's longest-running sports talk radio host, obviously talking sports, And if you've been able to listen, though, you'll know that food is his other passion. Where he founded Atlanta Eats as a 30-minute TV show, which he hosted about the Atlanta foodie scene and is now the premier source for all things about Atlanta restaurants airing seven days a week. While you can also find him hosting on the Food Network, and he's even behind the scenes as CEO and founder of Bread and Butter Content Studio. Here's episode 96 with Stephen Steak Shapiro. So we're, re- we're ready to rock and roll? Ready to rock and roll. Okay. Yes. Steak, Great thanks so you. much for joining me here on the podcast. Absolutely. I buddy. greatly appreciate it. Man, and you're, I mean, I know you're all over the place. You got food, sports, and <laughs> so from what you've seen so far, dealing with sports and food, what are people most passionate about? Is it food or is it sports? Well, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's certainly easy transition, right? A lot of people were like, how's a sports guy going to food? And I said, listen, you could talk about whether Matt Ryan's an elite quarterback or whether deep dish pizza or thin slice is a better, you know, uh, brand of pizza. It's all about emotion. It's all about passion. And, uh, that's what people feel strongly about, man. Talk to guys about food. Where do you get the best hamburger in Atlanta? What's the best food town in New Orleans or Charleston? Or talk to them about, you know, who's the best, uh, fantasy running back, you know, I mean, there's a lot of emotion. My kids are like, you don't have a real job. All you do <laughs> is eat at restaurants and just, we drive to school and we got to hear you rambling on about sports. Why doesn't dad have a real gig? Real gig? That's the dream job, yeah, in my is, opinion, right. right? They're trying to figure out how to fi- how to do similar, yes. right? My daughter's trying to figure out how she can get paid to talk about shopping. Of course. How can you monetize Fashion, that? Right, yes. Right. Well, you how do got- you create a business around your, uh, around your, uh, Stuff that you've been hammering your friends with for years, right? Uh-huh. My buddies I grew up with, they're just like, we can't even believe that somebody pays you to talk the same smack you've been talking for, you know, 40 years or so. So, yeah, it's a good gig if you can get it. So you talk about this talking smack for 40 years. Yes. Let's walk back then to before it was steak. Yes. It's just Steven Shapiro. Steven Shapiro. Steven yes. Shapiro. Little Steven. Yep. And how you gravitated towards <laughs> sports and became... Right. You know, you know, somewhat fascinated by sports. So uh, I grew up in Boston. So um, that's as uh, part of the uh, culture as it is today, as much as people talk about Boston as a sports town. 40 years ago, growing up, eight, nine years old, um, lived, breathed, died over sports, local sports. My parents weren't sports fans at all, but I was in a town where sports meant everything. And I remember listening to sports talk radio at eight or nine years old. I'd go to bed listening to it. And I thought back then, this is what I want to do for a living. I want to get paid to sit and talk about sports. Grew up an enormous Red Sox fan. Used to go to, you know, back then, parents were okay putting you on the subway, went on the green line, 10 years old, go to Fenway Park, pay two bucks, spend the whole day there, come back, put a quarter in the pay phone, call your parents, say I'm back at the subway, and nobody worried about it. It was a different world. Yeah, it was a different world. And, uh... And nobody worried about it. You know, you're 30,000 people moving into the stadium, 30,000 people going the other <laughs> way. And there's, you know, you didn't worry anything would happen to you as a 10 year old. So I, I just grew up in a place where me and my buddies, that's all we talked about, right? So I was in an era, you know, when I was 13, Larry Bird showed up in Boston. When I was, uh, nine, the Red Sox were in the World Series, grew up around the Bruins, you know, competing for Stanley Cups. Um, just was a huge 
Boston sports fan, fascinated by it, cut out clippings every day, read the sports page. I've read a sports page, I tell people, every day for the last 45 years, you know. People say, how do you get ready for your show? Well, when you've been just doing that naturally, right, you're going to gravitate to that content, which wasn't called content then, right? It was just like, I'm reading the sports page. It, you know, it was uh, unbelievable, the great place to build an affinity for sports and for broadcasting. First time I ever walked into, you know, a radio studio, I was fascinated. So my thought was, I would love to find a way to do this for a living. And you mentioned being a big Boston yeah. fan, and that's what... Growing up. Yep. Yeah, growing up. Sports fan, but yeah, certainly but how, Boston. How many times did the Red Sox make you cry then? So it was hard. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, there's nothing like... And Falcon fans eventually... You know, Falcon fans are feeling the same thing, because in 75, they went seven games. 78, the Red Sox lost a playoff game. They should have won. 86, they blew a lead with two outs and nobody on in the ninth, a two-run lead. So there's a litany of stuff very similar to the 28-3 to Falcons. I mean, really, especially the Bill Buckner, you know, that that was probably worse because you were one strike away. Falcons never really – Falcons had the one play where if we had run the if ball – they convert, kicked, that's yes. right. Falcons had the Super Bowl one, but I digress. So, you know, that's how you build character, history, tradition. Georgia fans have it here. Folks love to talk about Atlanta. You know, you're not Chicago, Boston, Philly, New York. You really are with Georgia, 100-something years of football, 95,000 every weekend there. The history is the same. The history is just not in the pro teams in Atlanta. In Boston, it was around the pro teams. And that's where the, the in, you know, the, the biggest sports fan you are, I believe, is from like age 9 to 15. That's when you live and breathe. And those are the fans that when they're in their 30s and 40s and 50s, are spending the money on their teams and talking about them. And did you automatically or naturally just have this affinity that you could have a very opinion, you know, yeah, uh, opinion, a strong opinion? Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> so I don't know, you know, listen, I was, you know, certain, you know, I think elementary school, junior high, went to summer camp. I was always kind of the leader, right? I was the loudest. I started the, we had our own sports club. I decided to start when I was 10 or 12. I mean, you can see in your own kids, like certain kids are naturally kind of leadership role, talk more than the others, organize all the nights out. That was always me. So, um, you know, whether or not I, I you know, I, I slowly had to get comfortable like everything else. Summer camp is really when I started, you know, fake doing play-by-play. I went to summer camp up in Maine. My kids going out at the same same place uh, from Atlanta. They go up to Maine to the same place. Camp Manitou, they go to Matoka. But started to get the confidence of being in front of a microphone, you know, and not being uncomfortable being in front of people and talking. And, um, you know, either you have that personality or, or you know, it's hard to turn. Now, if you're an athlete, like I work with Brian Finneran on the air, uh, we just interviewed his uh, coach was in studio from Villanova, who said Brian didn't say two words his whole career, in, <laughs> you know, at, at Nova. So he's got enough pedigree that eventually you become a broadcaster, right? Because you know the, the topic. For me, you know, uh, it, it just was, a, you know, I'd like to talk. <laughs> I like yes, to talk. You do. So, well, it's something that you're also passionate about, and you yes. know a lot about it. And yeah. that's the other side of it well, too is that when you're confident, right. as far as the knowledge, you can have those strong yeah, opinions. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're, you know, listen, when you're reading a sports page, when that's a part of your life, every day of your life, especially think about, you know, I grew up in Boston, where Bob Ryan was the Celtics beat writer, probably the best basketball writer of all time. Peter Gammons was the baseball writer for the Boston Globe, probably renowned as the first great beat writer, right? Um, the uh, Every guy that was writing for the Boston Globe back then, the sports page was was like the mecca, right? I mean, every day you're reading the, the best sports writers in the world. And um, so, and there's every sport. I mean, you're not just reading about Boston. For me, I, you know, I, I would... I had Sports Illustrated, Sporting News, and Inside Sports. And um, so there's a lot of, like they say, useless knowledge. I guess not so useless if you're a sports talk host. But it's just ingrained, you know, I gravitated to that topic, right? So um, went to school somewhere at Tulane College where radio wasn't a thing or communications wasn't. I was an English major. But if you combine a real passion for sports and reading and writing and then you get that deal at, at Tulane, uh, I kind of sets you up to hopefully be able to either write or talk about it. Why Tulane, though? Tulane, a lot of kids out of Boston, Northeast schools. So there's two schools from Northeast Jewish kids uh, gravitate towards, Emory and Tulane. Both uh, Southern schools, 35% Jewish, 
pretty good academic, get the hell out of the freezing cold Northeast, <laughs> right? That's right. And uh, so most kids, and even today, uh, a ton of kids from the Northeast, and uh, a lot of where I grew up, my town, Emory and Tulane, were the two schools that folks uh, applied to. I'd never set foot in New Orleans in my life. Best school I got into was kind of a no-brainer. Didn't get into Michigan. I didn't get into the Newhouse School at Syracuse, where I wanted to go. So uh, Tulane was a was the best option, and uh, you know began my love affair for New Orleans and for living in the South. Well, that's obviously a great place from a food standpoint as well. Exactly, New Orleans, right, you can't sure. beat that place. Now, were you into food back then so, as well? So, you know, my parents made me crazy about food. My dad was like, uh, every meal was a chance for greatness, I like to say, <laughs> you know. So we vetted, you know, nowadays everybody's on the Internet. So traveling and, and setting up your meals is standard, right? You know, everybody's got their folder when they go away and they got their game plan. We're going to Charleston or Dallas or Jacksonville. What's the best steakhouse? Where do we get tacos? Who's got the best barbecue? But back, uh, you know, in the 70s, our family, my mom was obsessed. We take trips to New York City and I've. I've told the story, uh, we never just would walk by a restaurant in my entire life and, and, and go like, oh, let's try this place. It was like, how can we try this place? Nobody recommended it. I didn't read an article about it. It's just way too big a gamble, right? <laughs> too, much like, risk, forbid, right? too much risk. Too much risk, right? Because we don't know if there's going to be greatness there, right? right? Exactly. So, <laughs> so my mom used to cut out articles uh, from those in New York Magazine and a magazine called Gourmet Magazine and wherever else, and plan for our trips. So by the time we got on a trip, she'd have her folder, and she'd start flipping through it, like, we're going to go to Barney's Greengrass for breakfast, and then here's where we're going for lunch, Katz's Deli, and here's, and God forbid, I'm starving, I'm 10 years old, <laughs> and we got to go another 40 blocks, and I'm just like, what's wrong with this place? It says pizza. Looks good to me, right? Exactly. So my parents really made me crazy about, like, you know, uh, again, it's kind of a Northeast Jewish thing that all we do is talk about food. Right? We're just talking about our next meal. Jackie Mason used to do a bit, uh, Broadway Borscht Belt comedian. And it's so true. He's like, we're sitting around, you having breakfast? We start talking about what we're going to have lunch. We're having lunch. We're talking about what we're going to have dinner. We're having dinner. We start talking about what we're going to have a pastry. Like, that's literally, we're always it consumes on. consumes you. Yes, consumes you. So I think that, and also, uh, I grew up in a three-generation family. So my grandparents lived with us, and my parents, and then uh, me and my brother. So we had dinner every night at 7.30, which was late. My mom's from Turkey, Istanbul. So it was late, and it was the six of us. Back then, you know, there weren't kids running in 50 directions, and, you know, everyone's on a different schedule. So mealtime was like a major thing, you know, like everybody's together. Um, pain, you know, listen, as a young kid, you just want to you eat at 6 o'clock, you want to move on, right? You want to go watch primetime television back then or, or watch, you know, I watch every single inning of every game and every minute of every sporting event. And I just wanted to get to it. But it definitely got the feeling that family and community and being around the dinner table was a big thing. So that's, I grew up with that as well. How are you balancing that now? Because with kids, as you mentioned, yeah. their schedules are all right. crazy. So and we don't have that. Sunday nights, we have it. I love the Sunday night tradition in America. It feels like, of like uh, the, in the fall, like so nobody's got their volleyball practice or their dance recital or their hitting coach or whatever, how crazy it is, on a Sunday night, right? So I'm usually about 1 o'clock on Sunday or 2 o'clock, everybody's pretty much home, right, getting ready for the week. So it feels like America, like 425, that, that late game on CBS um, or Fox is always like in the background and everybody's kind of milling around and we'll do like in in the spring and summer we'll do something on the big green egg. In the winter time you're kind of all hunkered down and mom's making a chili or whatever it is and dad's watching the games. But everybody's kind of in the same vicinity and then you all sit down together on Sunday nights. Also my kids are spoiled, right? Cuz I eat out a lot. So I'll be the first to tell you. I mean these, you know, um, <laughs> where some people are going to and and listen, I love the wing factory. You know, my kids, because of my relationship at a place like the Palm, it's like, hey, I haven't seen you all. We want to meet me at the Palm at, at 730, right? <laughs> so it's obnoxious. People are asked, like, hey, what's your favorite restaurant, Chick-fil-A? And, you know, my little one's like, oh, um, I love the Buckhead Diner, you know, at nine years old. <laughs> Top-notch places yeah. at nine years but old. But if you find the time, you know, one of the yeah. beautiful things about my job, um, at, you know, as an owner of a company, is that you can always find, you know, the, the windows, right? Yeah. So if... if 
if there's an opportunity where we can all have dinner together at seven o'clock, a lot of times it's a local Mexican place. We don't really go out that many nice places, but you know, just a local Mexican place on a Friday night. Mommy's got her margaritas. Dad's got his martini. The kids can kind of run crazy, but I really cherish those, that kind of stuff still. You can find the time if it's important. It's not going to be like it was when I grew up. But you got right. to make the time. It, yeah, and I know everything evolves, generations evolve, and things change. Right. But it does seem like, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, this whole sports situation and how it's taking a whole new life of its own in yeah. terms of these travel leagues, these AAUs. I think it's a great point. You talk about what can be really sucking the life out of an American family, not only financially, the pressure of elite travel teams are not so elite. Listen, let's be honest. I'm yeah, not even elite. They're not elite. You know they, what they are, are in terms of money. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to have not one or two travel things. We'll have four or five. So I'm in a situation now, and my daughter, middle of the road, volleyball. So there's the national teams. Those are the two travel teams. There's nothing national about them, right? I mean, that's just a nice term. Then there are the regional teams. It's really teams one through five, right? The higher level teams get to play out of state. Then there's the regional teams. It's completely set up by skill level and talent. The more kids you can bring in, the more you can charge them thousands of dollars. Um, how about in the summertime when you're dragging the whole family around to these baseball tournaments in Clearwater, Florida, or Fort Worth, Texas, or Birmingham, Alabama? And I always say, what's the end game, right? I mean, I know the kids probably love playing in these cool stadiums and tournaments, but is it really worth gearing the entire summer and so much of the family uh, is geared around these travel teams or so much money is spent uniforms and coaching and private lessons and and hotel rooms on the road and you know i said it on the radio is somewhat controversial i was like why don't you spend a couple of weeks over the summer how about going to washington dc and going to the smithsonian and the other 12 free museums there national air and space museum get a little educated because at the end of the day Nobody that are any of those teams, we say nobody, 1% are going to be playing at the next level or be playing Division 1A. So, yes, you love it as a parent. Yes, it's super fun. I've coached all my kids. But you see a lot of hours and dollars and time spent chasing. What are you really chasing, right? You could argue go to a, a, you know, go to a writing camp for a week or some kind of extracurricular or get, or go travel, Right? And go see and be together as a family. Right. Because they're not together as a family. We're getting the kids dragged. The 6- and 10-year-olds are getting dragged to these tournaments, right? That's right. Where you're like in in, uh, in Knoxville because, you know, your older brother's 11-year-old has got nine games in three days and everybody else has to make do with that. I mean, it's... They're li- crammed in in a Hampton Inn for no doubt. two nights, exactly. you know, and nobody's a, happy. Yeah, so, t- so get in a car and drive through... Uh, you know, we did uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Amish country, and Hershey, Pennsylvania, and Williamsburg. And th- you know, I mean, there's a lot of places in the country to see and learn. Um, but just the pressure, too. I mean, the pressure of if I don't pick my sport, if I don't have an individual instructor. Yes, great talent. Uh, you know, we're near uh, a, a great league in Atlanta, NYO. But, I mean, you look, here's Jerome Bettis's kid. Here's Matt Harpering's kid. Here's Rodney Harrison's kid. Those kids are going to be phenomenal anyway, right? They're coming from the right stock. They've got good DNA. Yes. So for everybody else, you're trying to catch up or you're worried, right? And you're threatened. Like, if he doesn't play eight months a year, these kids are going to pass him. And guess what? Yes, you know, the kids played eight or nine months a year. Probably you're going to pass your kid if you guys were even when the last season ended. So how much does that bother the dads and moms? How much does that bother the kids, right? It is a it is a rat it is a rat race it is a I called it the great volleyball shakedown you know there's they're like now they're all competing because they all want your money so I think it was one of these leagues was like if you come to tryouts you're going to sign a contract which means you're going to play for this uh, travel team right and if you sign it and you go play for somebody else you never get to play on this elite team again. Total shakedown. It really right? is, and I've seen it to carry over into the aspect that. It's a recruiting situation, too, with these different leagues, these different teams, and it's putting pressure on the parents to make a decision which team that they want their kid to go on, and then it's the pressure you mentioned just with the kid. Why should they be? I want to play with my friend. Well, your friend can't play at that league because that league's an elite, (laughs) right? And forget about what it's doing to high school sports or youth. You know, the great thing about NYO where I'm there is that they've made it a priority to say playing on this local community league 
is a huge deal, right? They made it a huge deal. So all these kids forego travel and everything else to play locally. And guess what? It's good for mom and dad. Guess when they are at five o'clock, they're driving up the road as opposed to driving to Chattanooga, you know? So uh, I think it's a major issue. And now the, the financial part of it, the haves and have nots, you know, you take middle class, um, uh, how about rougher neighborhoods? How are they going to compete? They're not getting the coach and the uniforms, the travel. They, they, don't, they can't afford it. So, um, you know, it is, it's a, it, it is Atlanta. I mean, I would say Atlanta, Florida, Texas, California, probably seeing it as, as bad as anybody. Although I got all my buddies who live up north, and they're, they're doing the same stuff. It's starting to happen everywhere. Yeah, and it's, it's frustrating. It is, because I also contend that if you've got enough talent, they'll find you. Yes. They will find you. Those, yeah. I mean, listen, if your kid has, this is the opportunity for them to go to college. And it is an, op- an opening. I get it. Focus on it from 12 years old. My daughter's, you know, uh, plays sports. She's not an athlete. She plays. She wants to play varsity volleyball. But her thing is academic. She's totally focused. I want to graduate first or second in my class. I got lucky with her, right? So I can see now at 12, everything is geared towards that, right? So she has a vision that she's going to go to school, an Ivy League school up north. Right? My other kids may end up, you know, going to, uh, you know, a local community. Well, who knows? Just for her, that's her thing. So you can see that she's always thinking about how am I going to do academically to get there. For a lot of kids, sports is that, right? I want to play in college. It's also a way for my parents to be able to afford for me to go to college. So either whether it's a small college or a 1A place, I get it. There's an end game. You're working towards a goal. There's a reason why you're sacrificing. But there's... 80% 80% where that's not the end game, where they really can't even tell you what it is. I think it would be a higher percentage than 80%. Right. More but, I mean, listen, there are enough kids in Atlanta that could probably play college. If you talk about, you know, uh, one one uh, FCS level, one AA, Division three. you know, there's a lot of great players in town. Even Division three may open it up. I get it. Or NAIA. So, um, but it is a balancing act man that's right and then and then you're you know how do you tell your kids i don't have the money when everybody else in town is or how do you tell your kids we're not willing to make the sacrifice well you know billy's parents are going to travel all over you know yeah, so uh, you must they must love their son right, or daughter right. more exactly yeah, yeah it, it is it, i've never seen anything like i mean atlanta is, is at the cream of the crop in terms of, of that kind of pressure. Yeah. Well, we could probably spend three different podcasts talking about that topic for sure. So I want to reel it back in to talk yes. back to Steak Shapiro. Yeah. And that you mentioned the first time you went into a radio station. Right. What was that well, like? And when was that? See a big, uh, so there's a school, Wellesley College, Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, alma mater. You've heard of Wellesley before. All women's school. And uh, I called up that radio station when I was 13 years old and figured that probably don't have a lot of men doing a sports show. And sure enough, it was uh, WZLY maybe was the station. And they said, we'll give you an hour on Fridays at 3 o'clock. So my parents drove me to Wellesley College. I walked into a radio studio and I did a sports show from 4 to 5 o'clock. That literally, when I say nobody, nobody was listening. <laughs> but um, this was at 13 years old. Yeah, 13 or 14 years old. And uh, just got that, you know, bug, their adrenaline, you know, when you see a microphone. And then it's just the fascination. I'm still fascinated. Look, and I get to do morning grind now for 20 years, that I'm going to say something in this microphone. And it's like, hold on, people in their cars are going to hear that? Like, I'm going to run into some guy and... At Goldberg's Deli, and he's going to say, I love what you said about, you know, Urban Meyer. Like, you know, this the notion of you talking into a microphone and people actually either hearing it or caring to choose to hear it. <laughs> but, you know, radio just was fascinating me. The radio yeah. studio fascinated me. Putting on headphones, the excitement of that, the adrenaline rush. You know, I still get it. It's the most, listen, radio is the most, radio sports I'm not talking about playing records and saying, you know, hey, we're back on the uh, fives and uh, doing a five-second teaser, right, and then going to the next song. I'm talking about doing a, a sports talk show or any talk show. That's the most fun thing, right? More fun than anchoring uh, the news where you're reading off a teleprompter. More more uh, fun than being a sideline reporter. Because it's free form. You can just go. Your, your personality, right? Yes. I've interviewed when I owned, uh, you know, I owned a sports station here for 18 years. 
And when kids would come in or, uh, you know, anybody would come in looking for a gig and be recommended or send tapes. And they'd be like, I know everything there is to know about sports. I've, you know, and, and I, I'm like, well, can you tell a good story? Do you have a lot of, you know, friends, life experience? Are you funny? Right? If you're not funny, I'm not listening to anybody in the radio that doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, it's got to right? have humor. Right. you got you got to have, uh, not take yourself so seriously. Like, there's a million people that can, you know, uh, recite to you the 1974 uh, Alabama Sugar Bowl team. Or, you know, or not a million, but there's plenty of people that have a depth of knowledge. It's it's all about entertainment, right? So what what's more fun or entertaining than getting to be yourself? Granted, you're, you know, you play it up. You're, you're a personality. But it's the most fun thing to do in the world. It's still the most fun part of my day is being on the air for three hours. So I felt that way at 12. And now 40 years later, I feel the same way. There's nothing more fun than sitting in a radio studio, right? And being able to, to have people hear you talk about whatever that topic is. So was it a challenge then for you? when you're having a different hat when you're owning radio stations yeah. and you don't, it's not just showing up and getting behind the right. microphone. Well, it's kind of like, uh, what do they say about uh, buying a boat? The best day ever is uh, the day you buy your boat and the next best day is the day you get to sell it <laughs> finally. So for me, owning a radio station at 29 years old in a market like Atlanta, uh, raised the money, started a station, 790 The Zone, was, was amazing. I was head of marketing program director, morning drive talent, president, uh, at five or six. We literally were like a mom and pop operating in a town as big as in Atlanta. Pretty amazing. Um, and had a great run and ran hard, renegade, grassroots. Uh, Atlanta's radio market was exploding in the 90s and 2000s. Um, but uh, the, the worst part about it is being the boss and having all these other on-air guys now know that you're signing their checks and you own the company. I, you know, so my point is, great day when I started the station, also a great day when I finally sold it and wasn't the boss anymore 17 years later because that wears on you, a lot of responsibility. You know, I was probably one of the only guys in America that was on morning drive and also owned the station. Um, yeah, how did that happen? How so, do you become an owner so of a radio station? I got fired right station. away when I moved to town from the station <laughs> I'm on now. 680 The Fan, moved here from Boston. and This was it. after Tulane and all of yeah, that, this obviously. Is, I was uh, late 20s, living in Boston. doing. I was a reporter in Boston and radio for uh, the four local teams. Great job. Red Sox, Celtics, Bruins, and Patriots. Went to every game and did reports from there. Um, got paid like 20 bucks a game or something, working for a big radio station out of Worcester. Worcester, Massachusetts. Worcester. Yeah. So, uh, but I wanted to be on the air. Then I was a producer. I was a terrible producer because I was the producer that's thinking I'm better than those guys on the air. I should be on the air. That's not the producer you want. I make sure when I hire a producer that they don't think that they're going to take my job because I definitely thought I was going to take those guys. So, um, moved to Atlanta. Like most radio guys, you're going to get fired. So, we got LMA leased out to WSB, Cox, within nine months. First thing Cox did was take over the sports station and blow it up because they own the Braves, Hawks, um, and Georgia. And we were super critical of all the teams because we were sports talk. And back then I was kind of obnoxious, right? I may <laughs> find that hard to believe. But we were hammering the teams. And so they took over the station, WSB, Cox, and then basically fired everybody. So I'm nine months in uh, to my first big gig doing morning drive in Atlanta. I'm out of a job. And I was engaged to be married to my first wife. And I was like, this is a, a lousy, I can say shitty career, right? Yes. This is a shitty career. I'm going to basically be bouncing all over the country and have no stability. So I had the bright idea to, uh, why don't we try to start a sports station? Because Cox didn't want to do it because they didn't want to piss off their teams. So I had a buddy that lived next door to me, uh, a guy up in Boston, uh, works at Bear Stearns, who uh, was making a ton of money back then. This is uh, the mid-90s. And every radio deal back then were great deals. You were trading on, if you're buying a radio station, you're selling a radio station, you're selling based on cash flow. So you're making two million bucks, you're, you're selling at 15 times cash flow. So 30 million bucks for a station that is cash flowing a couple of million, you could sell it for. So this guy loved radio. I didn't know jack shit about running a station. I didn't know jack shit about anything business-wise. But I put this awful business plan in front of him, and he's like, I'd make, I'd make so much money 
on all my other radio deals. He's just looking for the next radio Next deal, one, yeah, let's right? go. So next thing you know, I was like, I said to him, I said, is this the worst business plan you've ever seen, right? <laughs> um, and he's like, not only is it not the worst, I'll do the whole thing. I'll give you the million bucks. And he got 10 investors. And next thing I went from unemployed doing updates on WGST for the Kimmer, I was doing updates for him, to president of a radio business, big league broadcasting, um, and trying to figure out how to launch, hire the talent, get on the air. I got an offer in Philadelphia uh, at the same time, and I remember taking the job in Philadelphia, and I called my neighbor, and I said, I'm out. You know, I'm not, I can't own a station. I can't be an entrepreneur. I just want to be a sports talk guy. And he basically was like, dude, no one's ever going to hand you a company like this. Show some, you know, cojones. Uh, rethink that deal in Philly. And I'm handing you a chance to be president and owner. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, <laughs> so we took a run at it. Hired my partner from California, who I'd never met, uh, who I'd only met one time, Andrew Saltzman, who's now the chief revenue officer of the Hawks. And uh, he moved to run sales. I ran programming. We didn't know what the friggin' hell we were doing. And we had, you know, we built one of the premier sports radio stations in the, in the country. Yes, over you that did. Time. You did hire a good producer as well, Scott Shapiro, who I've had on the podcast. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> and he gives you a lot of credit, yeah. Andrew, and Andrew, yeah, well, he's uh, a, in terms of so he's his at, career. Well, he's awesome. He runs Fox. Uh, he left us for Mike and Mike. Um, we were ready to offer him the world, except we couldn't offer him the world <laughs> that ESPN could, right? So, Scotty. Um, Scotty came to us from Emory and then to ESPN and then back to us. So he's awesome and just a great. We had so much talent. So David Pollock started from ESPN at 790 The Zone. L. Duncan, their, uh, one of their lead sports center anchors, she started at 790. Chris Cotter, another sports center anchor, does all the college football. He started with 790 The Zone. Oh, uh, it's amazing the tree that yeah. has Buck come Blue from. started with us. John K. Yeah. K. started with us. Matt Chernoff started with us. Um, Mike Bell's at 92.9 the game. I mean, virtually everybody came through the zone at one point. And big national, you know, names. And Scott was our morning show producer. He now runs Fox Sports Radio in L.A. Yes, he does. And he's as smart as it gets. Awesome guy. It, just a tremendous guy. Yeah, when he told us he was leaving to go to Mike and Mike, we, we own stations in St. Louis. We said, you can run those. We'll make you this. We'll do that. But we're just like, you know when you have somebody that you're going to immediately be worse when they leave? You know, and they leave the building, but we couldn't keep them. But, um, but we had a great renegade mentality, you know, back then, because we weren't owned by a corporate entity. Of course. Yeah. Well, I lived in Atlanta during that, that beginning of that yeah. run. So Mayhem and AM, that was my routine. Yeah. And it almost to a point where I almost signed up for Connecticut School of Broadcasting right. because I just loved what you guys were yeah, doing. Was I was like, Wow, that would be a lot of fun, fun to do. Huge fun promotions. Atlanta was doing amazing back then. The radio business was booming. It was, I think it was a $400 million radio market. I think now it's like $200 million, $225 million. So, I mean, it, it was a great time to be in radio. No podcasts, no, uh, you know, satellite. You know, you're in your car, CDs or radio. 95% of every person in their car was listening to the radio. Why sell it then? So, well, we sold it 17 years later, right? And we had bought stations in St. Louis that were not doing well. And um, that was sucking us dry, all out of our cash flow. We were still making good money. And we were exhausted. I mean, we had three stations in St. Louis. We'd started a restaurant in Atlanta. We were working with Lincoln Financial Media, Star 94 folks. And... Um, and we needed to get out from under the, I mean, pressure. We sold the company at a good number, not like if we hadn't bought St. Louis, but that's like telling the guy that's got four good restaurants not to expand to have 40. You don't know <laughs> until you give it a shot. So, um, so it was an amazing experience all the way around. So going through all of those experiences, I presume then, how well did that set you up to be able to start this Atlanta Eats right. and yeah, Bread and Butter on. Productions and all that yeah, type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's, it set me up... Uh, in, in a, I would never have the confidence, especially without my partner, Andrew, who was going on to do something else. So we were co-presidents. Um, it, uh, it gave me the confidence that I could probably do this as a startup. Also knew what a pain in the ass being a startup was and building a brand from scratch and trying to figure it out. Like, um, 
It made me remember, every, you know, the process. We started this company from a Starbucks for six months and faked it. We had a yeah. So I want to hear about that. Yeah. When, so, uh, so the, the concept. Company, how did you come up so with this concept? It felt like uh, food and dining was exploding around the country. There's a there was a food show up in New England called Phantom Gourmet, um, which had been on the air for 15 years, which I. When I lived in Boston, appeared on a few times, which reviewed restaurants. The Phantom would show up at a restaurant, and they would review it. It was a TV show. And I thought, like, I saw that company, the Phantom Gourmet. They, they branched into uh, radio, and then they had TV show and live events. And I, I kind of thought, like, if anybody could do that in Atlanta, it probably could be me because I got the media background. And I had a huge passion for food. And uh, I was thinking about what... What would be a brand worth owning? And um, Atlanta's the number one dining out city in America. So more money is spent on food in restaurants than a percentage of dollars, right? Is that all because of you? <laughs> uh, yeah, of late, I guess. But it just means that we're cooking a lot less. My wife helped contribute to that number, I promise you. <laughs> so we're cooking less in Atlanta than anywhere else. There's more folks dining out and drinking. This is a big going out city. Enormous. I don't know if you have buddies in... You know, I have a lot of buddies in the Northeast. They don't go out the way Atlantans go out, right? You know, girls' night out, meeting buddies after work, going in the neighborhood, sports bars. I mean, this is a huge social going out city. And restaurants were the number one topic. If you saw Atlanta Magazine, every other cover was on restaurants. You saw Creative Loafing. If you saw the AJC, the only content that was always growing was, was restaurants. So um, raised all the money locally here. A bunch of, you know... Um, you know, uh, really high net worth guys that I had got to meet over the last 20 years that didn't know what the hell I was talking about, but they had faith, which was 90% of the time, any entrepreneur, they're investing in you, right? These guys, I mean, they didn't know food, media, TV show. I mean, they don't know what the hell. They believed in you. Well, I think they saw a track record. So the zone, we built the zone from scratch. They know how well it had done. We sold the company for a pretty good number. And they're like, we'll give you one shot. You don't know exactly what the hell you're talking about. It's a food TV show and how you're going to make money. And you don't even have the TV station yet. And uh, I showed him a pilot, created a fairly rough business plan again. <laughs> right? My was it a little bit better than the first one? It was a little one? bit better than the vacata. You know what the word vacata means? I do not. It, it's messed up. Okay. Right? Messed up business plan. It's like, what's this vacata business plan I'm looking at? It's a little bit better than that. And... You know, off we were in the world of food content, food and dining content, and started building um, a company's uh, bread and butter. First project was create the best local restaurant show in America for a market, and that's Atlanta Eats. And um, and that's what we're most proud of is people love that TV show. And from that, we got really good at content and 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 digital and understanding how to shoot food and understanding, um, you know. That everything's moving to your phone, so everything is about video, 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 video. Like everything is about video. It's not about radio. It's not about traditional TV. It's not about billboards. It's not about newspaper. We were in the right space. Video content. So part of it, we were smart. Part of it, we got lucky. But definitely for Atlanta, um, food and dining is the number one passion. Can you expand it out to other cities? So it's really hard because it it. it Content is so expensive to film. I mean, we spent millions of dollars the last six years. And unless you're on the ground and new advertisers. So we launched Gas South was an advertiser. Kia was an advertiser. And Georgia Lottery spending six-figure deals with us right out of the gate. And that's only because I knew them from 20 years of radio. If you don't have somebody like a steak that can go to blue chip advertisers and convince them. I mean, I am still think back and I say, how the hell did we you know, pull off the first few years because we were filming like crazy and burning up our, you raise up, we raised a million dollars to start the company. But somehow those three companies uh, believing in us. So um, what there... we can do is expand content. We can expand um, and we're doing stuff all over the country with convention visitor bureaus and big brands like Olive Garden's a big partner of ours and Maggiano's a partner and Longhorn's a partner and, um, uh, you know, Jack Daniels, like, Brands use us for content. But to start, I mean, think about what Atlanta Eats is. It's our digital, our social, our Facebook, our TV show seven days a week, our radio show, The Bird Show. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts out of our little building here that 
I don't know that you can pull that off in Nashville and New Orleans and Charlotte and 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 uh, there's just a lot of moving parts. Was there a period of time when you first started that you were looking at it and said, "I don't know if this is going to work"? Uh, I still, I'm still thinking about that right now <laughs> as we sit here. I think about my sales calls today. And I'm wondering. Um, yeah, you know, I, I've always been pretty good tunnel vision. That um, I, you know, I don't have time to. You know, I'm running, right? So I get off there and I'm just on sales calls and I'm, um, I'm on shoots and I, I just never really let myself believe that, uh, you know, despite the fact that we've been close a few times and I'm making payroll and we've been close to, you know, having down times. Um, but I knew that food was, I knew the whole country was moving to content, you know, marketing. And I knew that food was the number one topic. Everything indexing says, if you're talking about, digital foods, the number one topic that was our specialty. And I knew that all marketing, the, the, the hottest thing was going to be storytelling and video. So it's like, if, if you hire the right people, like everything is moving to uh, video and foods, the number one topic, well, those are the only two things we do. So I figured at some point we would figure it out. You mentioned storytelling, and that's what is big into sports as well, because it's sure. the ultimate drama. Yeah, it's the male soap opera. That's right. And so do you have a particular sports story that you've been involved with that's your favorite? Oh, man, you know, I, I won't call it my favorite, and there's we get a new one every week, but what just happened in the SEC championship game. So that's the definition of sports. And if you're not a sports fan, you can't you know, appreciate that here's a guy that was uh, benched of a national title game, that was going to leave Alabama and Jalen Hurts, that his benching won you a national title, that Tua Tungvaloa probably was leaving Alabama if he doesn't get in the game the year before because most folks said you're not playing the right quarterback. Him and his family were going to say we're out of here because you just made us sit for an entire year. And, uh, and then a year later to have the whole thing flip around, the kid doesn't leave Alabama. The kid does get benched after going 27 and two. The kid does basically only play mop up time. And, and the only reason two is playing is because Jalen, uh, Hurts got benched and took Nick Saban that long. And for him to beat Georgia, it's like you couldn't write a script like that. So, um, so that happens like not, you know, that's an un, I hate it. I hate it that it happened, <laughs> yeah. right? Being a Georgia fan and talking to Georgia fans, I, I, it, it's gut wrenching. But the story itself, I mean, is spectacular. It's a spectacular story. You know, Atlanta United, who, who'd have thought a city like Atlanta um, that gets uh, much maligned for not being a great sports town is putting 70,000 plus for a soccer, you know, game, two second year into it, has broken every single metrics, every record in the history of American soccer out of Atlanta, our shitty little sports town they like to, you know, um, and have have that be the one team that has unified our entire city, right? Like, go to uh, uh, baseball games. You don't see a lot of African-Americans. Go to uh, NFL Falcons game. It's, it's many more African-Americans than anything else. Basketball also. We're not really as diverse sometimes with our sports as we claim to be. What Atlanta United has done is unite, um, you know, nationalities, race, parts of town, affordable ticket, millennials, and, you know, mommies and daddies with their kids out in the burbs, OTP. I mean, who would have thought it would be a soccer team to do that? Agreed. You know, and, and be the toast of the town. So that's a story in and of itself. You know, we get an MLS team. We hire a guy that uh, had history in Europe running a team. We all of a sudden become the dominant team. And and, uh, and, and more about the fans. Who would have thought Atlanta could put 74,000 people on a Tuesday night for a soccer game? It's fascinating. It is. It's like you have to understand our city. We're growing like crazy still. We'll be the number six or five market in the next five years. And um, like to understand Atlanta, you have to look at Atlanta United, right? I mean, how, and understand the millennials, what they want. Just like if you understand what millennials want from food. They want experiential, right? So millennials are not, you know, they, what do they say millennials are killing? They're killing casual dining, Fridays and Wild Wing and Chili's and Applebee's. They're all getting crushed, right? Because millennials don't want that. Because they want that true experience of yes, something different and unique. Local, curated, authentic Use the terms, right? And they'll spend for it, right? Because they're not buying houses, but they're buying great trips and nice nights out, right? So they want experience, experiential. And um, 
So you have to understand that they're dominating a lot of spaces, craft beer, right, craft cocktails, and they want a sports experience that matches that, right? Well, that's what Atlanta United gives them. Before the game, the, uh, the uh, different uh, fan groups, uh, never sitting the entire time, knowing every cheer, having a ritual for post-game, that's really experiential. I went to a Falcons-Ravens game, and whatever the opposite of experiential is, was that. <laughs> it was a two-thirds empty stadium with no noise for an exorbitant ticket price, right? And nobody really, uh, terrible season, right? And, um, and, and nobody was vested in that product, right? It was a corporate, antiseptic, uh, no energy. And, and the night, you know, five nights earlier, it was 70,000 people, 100% unified, creating a absolutely dynamic atmosphere. And then you go to Ravens-Falcons game, that was, I mean, and again, not fair to the Falcons, that's as bad as it gets. I mean, that was as bad as it gets. I've been here for a lot. That was the night after the SEC title game, so the whole season of Georgia hangover, you know, literally and figuratively. Yes, they um, were. But if you want to understand the Southeast, and you want to understand Atlanta, you got to look at Atlanta United. But there's just this power of the NFL, though. That's what's amazing is right. that it's even from your standpoint. Well, it's the ultimate TV sport. It is. It's the ultimate fantasy sport. It's the ultimate gambling sport. Um, nobody's saying the NFL stadiums are amazing places. I mean, you know, there's great history and ritual. And listen, you've got some ridiculously historical friends. The Giants and Steelers and now the Patriots and the Chiefs and the I mean, there's, a, there's so much history tied into the NFL. And it's a super entertaining product. But it's not... Millennials aren't flocking to the NFL. They're not running from it, but they're not flocking to it the way in this town they're moving towards soccer. Listen, the NFL numbers are 50 times soccer, even in this town. Atlanta United's not a TV number. It's all about at the stadium. And we're just talking about being at the stadium. That experience. You go to a Falcons game in the last four years or Mercedes-Benz, it's not an amazing experience. It's a great, you know... It's like a, a, a an awesome multi-purpose nightclub. There's a great bar on the third <laughs> level, and there's a cool VIP on the second level, and there's a great bar. I mean, there's it's a beautiful place to eat and drink, but it's nobody would confuse it with being an electric atmosphere. Through all of your experiences, no telling how many hours you've been on the radio. Yes. One of the things that I like to focus on is words of wisdom, and as I mentioned, all this experience you've had. What are some words of wisdom? And it can be phrases, quotes, or mottos, or just right. life advice that has meant a lot to you. Well, uh, so Mike Smith, I remember when he got the job uh, as, as uh, coordinator, of, as head coach of the Falcons. And then I just had our corporate outing, the, CE, the COO of Darden Restaurants, who ran Olive Garden, my good friend Dave George, almost had the same philosophy. When they asked Mike Smith if he was always thinking about being a head coach, is that always your... And he said, I always felt like if I do my job really well, not think about I need to be a head coach and not think about what, just like be awesome at my job every day, then something good is going to happen. And eventually he knew, like, if I do a great job as coordinator for the Ravens and work, 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 then don't even think about anything else, that other good things will happen. And um, Dave George, who ran Olive Garden, his advice was, there's so many guys who are looking at if, you know, I'm a GM of a restaurant. What I want to do is I want to be a market manager. A market manager, I want to be a VP. Well, organically, it happens if you just say, I'm going to be awesome at this job, right? You know, it's like Howard Stern decided, I'm going to be awesome at being on the radio. I'm going to be better at it than anybody else. Now, he's had a million offers to do a million things. He said, I've made all my money in radio. That's what I'm great at. But that's all he ever thought about. So my advice to folks is, is just, I don't care if you're working at Starbucks. I don't care if you are, you know, um, baggage handler. People notice now, especially with millennials. When you have a millennial, and, and I'm not, when you see them busting their ass, going the extra mile, whether you're a waiter or a general manager in a restaurant, good things are going to happen. But don't be focused on the next thing. Be focused on going to work and just being outstanding that day at that job, right? And it's kind of like, um, you know, in our building, of course, you know in any building, I've been a boss for long enough. You're like, boy, that guy is awesome at his job. And, and you can pick up on it quickly. And you also think about what's the next thing I can provide for him. But he's not the one thinking about it, right? I saw a kid the other day, I won't name names, who's like supposed to be an intern at this company. He's like, yeah, I can't wait to start doing my podcast, right? 
almost like he had come to the radio station with the thought sending out packets. Well, guess what? He was an intern. He was a horrible intern. Right. And that was a perfect example. Like, dude, you're not even good at holding a, a phone <laughs> and filming the talent. Right. Because you're already thinking this place is going to be my road. Right. And he was so not good at just being doing the grunt work that that and because why he literally said it. Uh, oh, I can't wait till um, I get to do A, B or C, which was not what he was doing. Right. And to me, that was a great example. By the way, the kid probably won't, he's not going to be there long because I talked to, <laughs> I talked to a supervisor, but that's why, right? Like, I'm thinking about what's, how I could be doing stuff better than this. If you're great at what you are asked to do every day, that's one thing I think about. Also, just, you know, look, there's no, you can work smart and talk about work-life balance and all that, but, but there is no replacing just working hard. And, uh, I still think the guy that gets in earliest and, and the guy that is, you know, you can have it all, but you just have to work really hard and pick your spots. You know? Work hard and be in the moment. Yeah. yeah. Work hard and be in the moment. I like mm-hmm. that. Beautiful. So, well, good. in the moment here with you, Steak, it's been an honor. Awesome. Thank you so Great much. Great to for... see. Congratulations on everything you have going on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Having a passion that one day can become a job, it isn't really work. Because for most people... They've been following their passion well before they were getting paid or receiving any type of paycheck. And it's evident that Stake has hit the sweet spot by being able to follow his passions, not only in sports, but in food as well. And even though it hasn't always been easy, and of course, there's been ups and downs, but his hard work has equaled his passion, which has allowed him to be in the moment. Now that finishes episode 96, and remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.